All right, I invite you now to take out your Bibles. You can turn to John chapter 11. John 11, starting in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I'll send the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being called by your name. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. Lord, now as your word is opened and proclaimed, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, may your people be edified and built up. May we be shaped and conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, may those who don't know you be brought to repentance and faith. And Lord, may we see through this text what you intend for us to see. Lord, do what only you can to open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and minds. Lord, may we receive uh, the comfort that we are meant to see from Christ's humanity. And Lord, may we be willing to believe and receive this all as it is, the word of God, not the word of man. May it be your truth that is said and nothing else. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, and we've been working through the story of Lazarus. Uh, After first hearing of Lazarus' illness, we saw that Jesus very deliberately waited for another two days where he was before he headed out to Bethany uh, with the village of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. We saw Jesus was then greeted by Martha as he arrived outside of Bethany, and then we covered the fifth of the famous I am statements of Jesus in John. As Jesus told Martha in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who believes in me shall never die. Now, we've been taking our time through this section, seeking to really lean into everything that Jesus says and does here so that we don't miss any elements of this story. Uh, We saw last week that because Christ is the resurrection and the life, there is great hope for Christians, both as we consider our loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, as well as for us as we prepare for the inevitability of our own deaths. Now, the week before that, we looked at the providence of God in suffering, showing how John goes out of his way to make sure that we see that the delay of Jesus was something done in love. We saw as well that the scriptures say the same about all of God's children, the suffering of all God's children. 
And so in this text, we will pick back up again with the theme of suffering, as we see that despite the glories of resurrection that were just around the corner, Christ our Savior nevertheless still wept as he was surrounded by the grief of Lazarus' death. So with that introduction, we pick back up in our text, John 11, starting in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. So to set the stage again, Lazarus has died, and he has now been in the tomb for four days. Uh, I think if we could extrapolate a little bit from experience, maybe speculate and pause for a moment to think of what these four days have been like for the family, I think we could safely say that at this point, their pain has not yet begun to lessen. It is still the thing that is dominating their thoughts and weighing down their hearts. It is perhaps what has been keeping them up at night with tears in their eyes and is likely the very first thing that painfully springs to mind when they wake up in the morning. Jesus arrived in Bethany, but he was too late to heal Lazarus. Martha had gone out to meet him, but Mary had stayed in the house. Uh, We saw Martha express her grief and her faith to Jesus, saying, If you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha even confessed her faith that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life, that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, who had been prophesied to come into the world. And then we saw after this, Martha went back to the house to let her sister Mary know that Jesus was calling for her. And so that's where she, where we pick up. Uh, when Mary heard this, she rose quickly and went to meet him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Now the reason he stayed outside the village was likely so that he could have a private audience with Martha and now with Mary. Uh, remember again that at this point in the ministry of Christ, he tends to attract large crowds wherever he goes. So had Jesus entered the town, it's very unlikely that he gets a private audience with either Martha or Mary. Uh, verse 31, when the Jews who were with Mary, with her in the house, consoling her, saw her rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So much for another private audience. So Mary's well-intentioned comforters follow her, thinking she's going to the tomb to grieve. Verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's words are identical with Martha's, although Mary expresses them with more emotion as she falls and weeps at the feet of Christ. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled, and then he asks, where have you laid him? Then we get the shortest verse in our English Bibles. Jesus wept. Now, given the setting, we naturally assume that grief is the cause of these tears, that grief is the cause of him being moved in spirit, deeply moved and greatly troubled. Uh, But as you begin to dig into that question of, of what these tears were about, 
you'll find actually there's more to it than just grief. Now, my Bible has a footnote, yours might as well, that the phrase there, deeply moved, uh, could actually be translated as indignant. Right? Jesus was indignant. Now, of all the translations I compared, I, I think the NLT was the one that did the best with this, uh, saying, a deep anger welled up in him. Now, I won't try pronouncing the Greek word, but it is defined by Strong's Concordance this way. So this word for deeply moved in the Greek means to be moved with anger or to admonish sternly. Now, the word literally comes from uh, the sound that a horse makes when it snorts, right? To, to snort like a horse. Uh, this is an expression of strong indignation. D.A. Carson writes of this word, it invariably, that is always, suggests anger, outrage, or emotional indignation. So Jesus, when he saw the weeping of Mary and the Jews, he was deeply moved, which in this case means he was moved with anger, with indignation, outrage, and was greatly troubled. Uh, that is, he was agitated, stirred up on the inside. That's the same word used to describe the angel stirring the pool of Bethesda. Uh, agitated, stirred up. And so D.A. Carson comments on this section and says that it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like, close quote. In other words, he says, if you really want to be honest with the text and what these words actually mean, he says you cannot take this section to be merely an expression of grief. Right? There's something more that's going on here. Anger, outrage, indignation. So that makes us ask, why? Right? Why is Jesus angry in this moment? What causes this reaction within him? Now, I wrestled quite a bit with this question and found that commentators gave quite a variety of answers, uh, but none of them quite seemed to be a full or obvious explanation. Uh, through prayer and study, it eventually came to me that it might be a mistake to look for one single explanation. Right? If we just back up for a second, remember again that Christ is fully human. Right? He is fully God, but he is also fully human. That is, he is exactly as we are. Right? Hebrews said, made in every way like his brothers, yet without sin. Uh, well, with that as our starting point, we know that human emotions are not always straightforward and orderly. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> I'm sure we can all think of times where we have felt overwhelmed in a moment, and perhaps we didn't even know why. As we begin to think about it, we realize that it could be a whole host of things that have begun stacking up. Right? Our kids have been extra cranky for the last week. Perhaps there's been drama or even a falling out with a close friend. Then a pipe broke and flooded your basement. Work has been difficult. A family member is sick, perhaps even dying. Your finances aren't where you'd like them. And then you spilled your coffee on your pants. And your reaction to that spill was something that you couldn't easily explain. Human emotions can be complex. On top of the stacking up of things that induce anxiety, we also know that tears can come from different directions. Right? 
sorrow and grief, certainly, but also joy and gratitude and just about everything in between. You know, the most common thing that makes me well up is the gospel. Think of some of the, the lines that we've sung. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I think that's a line that's produced a few tears. Uh, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in, by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That one gets me every once in a while. All right, so we know sorrow can cause tears, joy can cause tears, gratitude can cause tears, complex tanglings of emotions in emotionally charged environments can cause tears, can cause complicated internal reactions, outrage, grief, love, and joy can all be tangled up. And so now, with that in mind, let us come back to the situation that Jesus is in and just consider it is now the 11th hour of Christ's earthly ministry, right? In less than two weeks, Jesus is going to be sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane, praying, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, as he agonizes over what he's about to endure. Jesus knows that this miracle he's about to perform will be the final straw that will set in motion the deliberate planning of his death by the chief priests and the Pharisees. As we've been told repeatedly by John through this section, Jesus deeply loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So he comes here and he sees their grief. He knows what Lazarus had gone through. And so compassion and empathy are undoubtedly part of the mix. Christ has come now to a very emotionally charged place, surrounded by mourners, the weeping of those whom he loves. And then we have this repeated refrain, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Right, if only you'd come, you could have spared us all this pain. And whether it was intended or not, what I would hear if a question like that was aimed at me is this. Why didn't you come? Don't you love us? Don't you care about our brother? We see the question of the Jews when they see Christ weeping. Some assumed it was simply grief, and they comment, verse 37, uh, see how he loved him, or verse 36 rather. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38 says then, Jesus deeply moved again. Now it's, it's literally, therefore Jesus greatly moved again. Indignant, same word as before. Now the implied question seems to be this. If he loved him, and if he could have saved him, why didn't he? The word therefore in the text, pardon me, the word therefore in the text connects verses 37 and 38. 
And so we see it was this question from the Jews that provoked Jesus again. And so I think this might be one of the keys as to what's going on in Christ. How do we explain this indignation or this anger? And I think perhaps one of the reasons for all of this is the questioning of his motives. The questioning of his motives. We've seen this theme drawn out by John through this text. Remember again, we've seen the connection between verses 5 and 6. Jesus loved uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed for two more days. We've seen this tension. It's come through repeatedly. Jesus loved this family. And so the tension in this passage, the question in our minds, if he loves them, why bring them through something like this? And that question may be part of what produced this indignation. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why weren't you here? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved, or therefore Jesus, deeply indignant, outraged within. This second indignation is sparked by the questioning of the Jews who question his motives and his power. Couldn't he have healed him? And if he loved Lazarus, wouldn't he want to? The response of Christ to this line of questioning is indignation. So take all of this together. Look at where Christ is. uh, And we have grief, compassion, love, perhaps the anxiety of his own approaching death. It's contemplation of the wrath of God that he will have to endure as he who knew no sin is going to become sin for our sake. Perhaps anger at the effects of sin he sees around him. The devastation of death wrought on all mankind. Mix in the questioning of his motives and his power, right? The questioning of the love of Christ. And you've got quite the cocktail. So my best answer as to why Christ was angry, and why he wept here, is that it was a potent mixture of emotions produced by this variety of factors that we've outlined. So, if we are correct in seeing the questioning of his motives and power as one of the key reasons for his indignation here, then there is a very important application for us. I don't know if you notice the parallel between this questioning of the Jews and one of the very common arguments that is brought against the existence of God. So verse 36 has some of the Jews commenting on the love that Jesus had for Lazarus. And then verse 37 has others asking this question, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? So the question is, if he had the power to do that, right, to open the eyes of a man born blind, couldn't he also have saved this man? Perhaps the implication. And if he loved him, Wouldn't he want to? So as the argument of the philosophy professor goes, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, then why is there evil in the world? See the parallel. If he's all-powerful, wouldn't he be able to get rid of evil? And if he's all-good, wouldn't he want to? 
And so they point to the fact that there is still evil in the world and say, therefore, if there is a God, he's either too weak to do anything about this evil, or if he could intervene but chooses not to, then he's not good. Not a God worth worshiping. Either way, the all-powerful and all-good God of the Bible can't exist. Uh, They think they've won the argument. Now, to equip you, part of what we want to do is, is equip our people to answer the challenges that will uh, be thrown at us by the world, especially young people. If you are heading into college or university, uh, into an unbelieving setting, uh, we, we want you to have uh, what you need, to have the tools uh, to be equipped. So uh, first off, if someone throws this at you, it's worth pointing out that if they are correct and there is no God, they actually lose the ability to make a moral claim. Right, think of it, in a universe with no God, right, grant them their presupposition for a moment, if there is no God, no transcendence, if we are all just star stuff, the product of time, matter, and chance, then what is evil? How is one person killing another person any different from two asteroids colliding? It's all just matter in motion, star stuff. So how can you say that it would be wrong or evil, right? To say that there is something wrong or evil implies there is a moral standard that really exists. And so to use those categories that you actually have to borrow from the Christian worldview. And so the atheist denying the existence of God by using arguments that aren't valid in a universe without him, that atheist is self-defeating. In the famous illustration of Cornelius Van Til, the atheist critiquing God is like a child sitting on her father's lap and slapping him in the face. She could not slap him unless he supported her. And secondly, we see as well that our text provides a powerful answer to this argument. Does Christ, does Christ love Mary? Martha, and Lazarus? Absolutely yes. No question. Did Jesus have the power to prevent Lazarus from dying? Absolutely. In fact, if we were to criticize anything in the statements of these sisters, it would be the assumption that Jesus needed to be there in order to heal Lazarus. They kept saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But as we saw with the official in John 4, Jesus does not need to be physically present to heal. Remember that story Jesus said, go, your son will live. The reason that Lazarus died was not due to a lack of power on the part of Christ, nor was it due to a lack of love for what have we seen through this text. Jesus had a higher purpose in mind. Verse 4, Jesus said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus, therefore, had a purpose for letting Lazarus die. And so this was not a lack of love, 
nor was it a lack of power. Jesus says it was for the glory of God and by extension for the good of his people. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, Lazarus has died and for your sake I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. This situation is going to put Christ's glory on display in a way that healing would not have done. And ultimately, in the final evaluation, seeing and savoring, seeing and loving more of the glory of God is what everybody needs most. Therefore, it is loving of Christ to do this. Now, the second problem with the atheist's argument against God is the assumption that they make, right? And that assumption is that a good and all-powerful God could not possibly have a good reason for doing things this way. Or you see, that assumption was smuggled into their premise, right? If God was good, he would wipe out all evil right away. Would he, though? Do you not think it's possible that perhaps this God who spoke all things into existence might have reasons for doing things that you can't comprehend? Why does God do things the way he does? Why all this suffering? Why all this pain? Job asked that question. Job was a godly man who lost everything and was in suffering. To his credit, Job maintained his integrity and refused to curse God. But he did challenge, and he asked, why? Why has all this happened? God eventually answers him from the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God answers Job's questioning by showing him that these questions are above his pay grade. If you're going to question me, if you would find fault with my governance of the universe, if you're going to have, find fault with my providence, then first answer me this, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? You must be extremely wise if you think that you are qualified to critique me. You must be extremely powerful, God says, if you think you are qualified to criticize me. Does the lightning ask you where to strike? Can you buckle the belt of Orion? Do you call out the stars by name? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job's final response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the argument is this. If you don't even know these things, right, if you don't understand the complexities of the cosmos, of the material world, then what do you think qualifies you to find fault with the God who is running it all? Right, if you are this limited in your understanding, right, as a creature that God made from the dust, then perhaps some humility is in order. Right. I, for one, am not qualified to criticize the work of the engineers designing Boeing's latest jet engines. Right, there is a complexity there that I simply don't understand. And yet those engineers are simply other human beings. Right, with enough time and study, right, you could become qualified to criticize their work. But consider how much greater the gap between us and God. How much greater the complexity of governing the cosmos. The God who commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place has reasons for what he does that our minds will not be able to grasp. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11. 33 to 36. We, God's creatures, with all the limitations that come from creatureliness, which is then compounded by our own sinfulness, we are not in a position to criticize our maker, to put God on trial. And as God's response to Job and Christ's reaction to the questioning of the Jews would indicate, God is not pleased by having his motives or his power questioned in this way. And what we need to see is that even God's anger at this lack of humility, even his anger at this unbelief, is produced by love. It is a product of love. How? An attitude in us of suspicion, of arrogant questioning and doubt, these things in us are the very things that would prevent us from seeing him in our moments of pain. How else should Christ feel about them? Should he be happy about our doubt, about our questioning, about our unbelief? Should, we be, should he be happy about the things that will separate us from him? No. Pride on our part will prevent us from seeing God. For as Lewis points out, a prideful person is always looking down on others, and, and as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, verse 6. So brothers and sisters, even in your pain, trust in God. Remember who he is and who you are and the distance in between. Remember his promises that he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
And remember this story, which proves beyond all shadow of any doubt that despite what appears to be evidence to the contrary, God's love and God's power are never in question. For he has purposes beyond our comprehension. Good purposes. Righteous purposes. Reasons for doing the things he does that are beyond all we could possibly ask or imagine. Christ's love for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, as well as Christ's power, are both about to be put on dramatic display. Any doubt of his love or his power is about to be shattered because he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And let us remember, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. So the resurrection of Lazarus vindicates the love and power of Christ. It shows his love, wisdom, and power such that all may see that Christ truly did have a good purpose in mind. This will be doubly true on the last day. When the dead are raised imperishable and all creation has been redeemed and the kingdom has been fully consummated, so too shall the wisdom, love, and power of God be put on glorious display such that all of our doubts and questioning and suspicion will be put to shame. Praise the Lord. However, we are not yet there. While that end is assured for us, while Christ has definitively won the victory, defeating sin, death, and Satan by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, though he is presently reigning at the right hand of the Father and making all his enemies his footstool, as Hebrews says, yet at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right, so that battle has been won, the victory is assured, but we do not yet see it in its fullness. Pain is still here. Suffering is still here. And while we take great hope and live in the joy of that hope, our pain in the meantime is still very real. And so one of the great comforts that God has given to us is that we have a merciful and faithful high priest who really understands what it is to be human and can therefore sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And this text gives us a beautiful illustration of this truth. So whether it was grief, compassion, sympathy, anger at unbelief, anger at death, anger at having his love questioned, or perhaps even anguish about what he was going to endure in the coming days, In this text, we see something profound. Jesus wept. He was so moved with emotion, perhaps very complex emotion, that tears came to the eyes of God the Son. So he saw the grieving family of his friend. And so whatever the emotions were that prompted this response, it powerfully reveals or points to this truth that Jesus is fully human. There is a human being seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And lest we be tempted to think that his exaltation to the right hand of God has removed him from his ability to sympathize and relate to us, Hebrews sets us straight. It's become one of my favorite verses. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, has been tried as we are, yet without sin. As the Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes, Christ both can be, or he is capable of, and likewise he is touched by our infirmities. So though Christ is now in heaven, though he is surrounded by saints and angels, where there is fullness of joy and no crying, sorrow, death, nor pain, Scripture assures us that this has not rendered Christ indifferent to our pain. This has not rendered him unable to sympathize with us. This has not put his heart above the possibility of being touched by our infirmities, by our struggles. Christ both can be and likewise is touched by our infirmities. Jesus wept. He knows what we go through. He understands our pain, our struggles, our weaknesses, and our Savior sympathizes with us. The humanity of Christ, among other reasons, is a doctrine revealed so that we may know that Christ knows. And I found there are few more precious truths when you are suffering, when you are loaded down under the weight of anxiety, sorrow, or fear, or when you feel smartingly the burden of your own failings and sinfulness. There are few truths more precious in those moments than to know that your Savior sympathizes, that his heart is moved for you. Christ knew that he would raise Lazarus, but still, Jesus wept. Christ knew that the sorrow of these mourners was about to turn to joy, but still, Jesus wept. Christ knew his love and his power would be vindicated, but still, Jesus wept. Christ knew that all doubt and suspicion in his people would one, one day be purged, answered definitively in his victory. But still, Jesus wept. There is deep comfort here. To know that even though the trials we encounter are truly from the hand of our sovereign God and are ultimately for our good and his glory, Nevertheless, here in the meantime, Christ sympathizes. Knowing the glory that awaits, knowing he has defeated death, and knowing that one day you, Christian, will have every tear wiped from your eyes. Nevertheless, Christ sympathizes with us. His heart is touched. Let us take comfort in the sympathy of our Savior. Amen.